0: Part One of Volume Three of Plutarch's Parallel Lives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume One of Plutarch's Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Pericles, Part One. On seeing certain wealthy foreigners in Rome carrying puppies and young monkeys about in their bosoms and fondling them, "'Caesar asked, We are told, if the women in their country did not bear children, thus in right princely fashion rebuking those who squander on animals that proneness to love and loving affection which is ours by nature, and which is due only to our fellow men. Since then our souls are by nature possessed of great fondness for learning and fondness for seeing, it is surely reasonable to kid those who abuse this fondness on objects all unworthy either of their eyes or ears.' to the neglect of those which are good and serviceable. Our outward sense, since it apprehends the objects which encounter it by virtue of their mere impact upon it, must needs, perhaps, regard everything that presents itself, be it useful or useless, but in the exercise of his mind every man, if he pleases, has the natural power to turn himself away in every case, and to change, without the least difficulty, to that object upon which he himself determines. It is meet, therefore, that he pursue what is best, to the end that he may not merely regard it, but also be edified by regarding it. A colour is suited to the eye if its freshness, and its pleasantness as well, stimulates and nourishes the vision, and so our intellectual vision must be applied to such objects as, by their very charm, invited onward to its own proper good. Such objects are to be found in virtuous deeds. These implant in those who search them out a great and zealous eagerness which leads to imitation. In other cases, admiration of the deed is not immediately accompanied by an impulse to do it. Nay, many times, on the contrary, while we delight in the work, we despise the workmen, as, for instance, in the case of perfumes and dyes. We take a delight in them, but dyers and perfumers we regard as illiberal and vulgar folk. Therefore it was a fine saying of Antisthenes, "'when he heard that Ismenius was an excellent piper. "'But he's a worthless man,' said he, "'otherwise he wouldn't be so good a piper. "'And so Philip once said to his son, "'who, as the wine went round, "'plucked the strings charmingly and skilfully, "'Art thou not ashamed to pluck the strings so well? "'It is enough, surely, if a king have leisure "'to hear others pluck the strings, "'and he pays great deference to the muses "'if he be but a spectator of such contests. "'Labor with one's own hands on lowly tasks "'gives witness,' in the toil thus expended on useless things, to one's own indifference to higher things. No generous youth, from seeing the Zeus at Pisa, or the Hera at Argos, longs to be Phidias, or Polycletus, nor to be Anacreon, or Philetus, or Archilochus, out of pleasure in their poems. For it does not of necessity follow that, if the work delights you with its grace, the one who wrought it is worthy of your esteem. Wherefore the spectator is not advantaged by those things at sight of which no ardor for imitation arises in the breast, nor any uplift of the soul arousing zealous impulses to do the like. But virtuous action straightway so disposes a man that he no sooner admires the works of virtue than he strives to emulate those who wrought them. The good things of fortune we love to possess and enjoy, those of virtue we love to perform. The former we are willing should be ours at the hands of others, the latter we wish that others rather should have at our hands. The good creates a stir of activity towards itself, and implants at once in the spectator an active impulse. It does not form his character by ideal representation alone, but through the investigation of its work, it furnishes him with a dominant purpose. For such reasons I have decided to persevere in my writing of lives, and so have composed this tenth book, containing the life of Pericles and that of Fabius Maximus, "'who waged such lengthy war with Hannibal. "'The men were alike in their virtues, "'and more especially in their gentleness and rectitude, "'and by their ability to endure the follies of their peoples "'and of their colleagues in office, "'they proved of the greatest service to their countries. "'But whether I aim correctly at the proper mark "'must be decided from what I have written. "'Pericles was of the tribe Achamantis, "'of the Deme Calargus, "'and of the foremost family and lineage on both sides.' His father, Xanthippus, who conquered the generals of the king at Machaela, married Agariste, granddaughter of that Cleisthenes who, in such noble fashion, expelled the Pisistratae and destroyed their tyranny, instituted laws, and established a constitution best attempered for the promotion of harmony and safety. She, in her dreams, once fancied that she had given birth to a lion, and a few days thereafter bore Pericles. His personal appearance was unimpeachable, except that his head was rather long and out of due proportion. For this reason the images of him, almost all of them, wear helmets, because the artists, as it would seem, were not willing to reproach him with deformity. The comic poets of Attica used to call him Cynosephalus, or Squill Head. The squill is sometimes called Shinnus. So the comic poet Cratinus, in his Chirons, says, Faction and Saturn, that ancient of days, were united in wedlock their offspring was of all tyrants the greatest, and lo, he is called by the gods, the head coropeller. And again in his nemesis, Come Zeus, of guests and heads, the lord. And Telecledes speaks of him as sitting on the Acropolis in the greatest perplexity, now heavy of head, and now alone, from the eleven couched chamber of his head, causing vast uproar to arise. And Eupolis, in his demes, having inquiries made about each one of the demagogues as they come up from Hades, says, when Pericles is called out last, the very head of those below hast thou now brought. His teacher in music, most writers state, was Damon, whose name, they say, should be pronounced with the first syllable short, but Aristotle said he had a thorough musical training at the hands of Pitholides. Now Damon seems to have been a consummate sophist, but to have taken refuge behind the name of music in order to conceal from the multitude his real power, and he associated with Pericles, that political athlete, as it were, in the capacity of rubber and trainer. However, Damon was not left unmolested in this use of his lyre as a screen, but was ostracized for being a great schemer and a friend of tyranny, and became a butt of the comic poets. At all events, Plato represented someone as inquiring of him thus, In the first place, tell me then, I beseech thee, thou who art the Chiron, as they say, who to Pericles gave his craft. Pericles was also a pupil of Zeno the Eleatic, who discoursed on the natural world, like Parmenides, and perfected a species of refutative catch which was sure to bring an opponent to grief, as Timon of Phleas expressed it. His was a tongue that could argue both ways with a fury resistless, Zeno's a sailor of all things. But the man who most consorted with Pericles and did most to clothe him with a majestic demeanor that had more weight than any demagogue's appeals, yes, and who lifted on high and exalted the dignity of his character was anaxagoras the clazomenian, whom men of that day used to call nous, either because they admired that comprehension of his which proved of such surpassing greatness in the investigation of nature, or because he was the first to enthrone in the universe not chance nor yet necessity, as the source of its orderly arrangement, but mind, nous, pure and simple, which distinguishes and sets apart, in the midst of an otherwise chaotic mass, the substances which have like elements. This man Pericles extravagantly admired, and being gradually filled full of the so-called higher philosophy and elevated speculation, he not only had, as it seems, a spirit that was solemn and a discourse that was lofty and free from plebeian, said reckless effrontery, but also a composure of countenance that never relaxed into laughter, a gentleness of carriage and cast of attire that suffered no emotion to disturb it while he was speaking, a modulation of voice that was far from boisterous, and canny similar characteristics which struck all his fears with wondering amazement. It is at any rate a fact that, once on a time when he had been abused and insulted all day long by a certain lewd fellow of the baser sort, he endured it all quietly, though it was in the marketplace, where he had urgent business to transact, and towards evening went away homewards unruffled, the fellow following along and heaping all manner of contumely upon him. When he was about to go indoors, it being now dark, he ordered a servant to take a torch and escort the fellow in safety back to his own home. The poet Ion, however, says that Pericles had a presumptuous and somewhat arrogant manner of address, and that into his haughtiness there entered a good deal of disdain and contempt for others. He praises, on the other hand, the tact, complacence, and elegant address which Simon showed in his social intercourse. But we must ignore Ion, with his demanding that virtue, like a dramatic tetralogy, have some sort of farcical appendage. Zeno, when men called the austerity of Pericles a mere thirst for reputation, and swollen conceit, urged them to have some such thirst for reputation themselves with the idea that the very assumption of nobility might in time produce all unconsciously something like an eager and habitual practice of it these were not the only advantages pericles had of his association with anaxagoras it appears that he was also lifted by him above superstition that feeling which is produced by amazement at what happens in religions above us it affects those who are ignorant of the causes of such things and are crazed about divine intervention, and confounded through their inexperience in this domain, whereas the doctrines of natural philosophy reprove such ignorance and inexperience, and substitute for timorous and inflamed superstition that unshakable reverence which is attended by a good hope. A story is told that once upon a time the head of a one-horned ram was brought to Pericles from his country place, and that Lampon, the seer, when he saw how the horn grew strong and solid from the middle of the forehead, declared that whereas there were two powerful parties in the city that of Thucydides and that of Pericles the mastery would finally devolve upon one man the man to whom this sign had been given anaxagoras however had the skull cut in two and showed that the brain had not filled out its position but had drawn together to a point like an egg at that particular spot in the entire cavity where the root of the horn began At that time, the story says, it was Anaxagoras who won the plaudits of the bystanders. But a little while after, it was Lampin, for Thucydides was overthrown, and Pericles was entrusted with the entire control of all the interests of the people. Now there was nothing, in my opinion, to prevent both of them, the naturalist and the seer, from being in the right of the matter, the one correctly divined the cause, the other the object or purpose. It was the proper province of the one to observe why anything happens, and how it comes to be what it is, of the other to declare for what purpose anything happens, and what it means. And those who declare that the discovery of the cause, in any phenomenon, does away with the meaning, do not perceive that they are doing away not only with divine portents, but also with artificial tokens, such as the ringing of gongs, the language of fire signals, and the shadows of the pointers on sundials. Each of these has been made, through some causal adaptation, to have some meaning, However, perhaps this is a matter for a different treatise. As a young man, Pericles was exceedingly reluctant to face the people, since it was thought that in feature he was like the tyrant Pisistratus. and when men well on in years remarked also that his voice was sweet, and his tongue glib and speedy in discourse, they were struck with amazement at the resemblance. Besides, since he was rich, of brilliant lineage, and had friends of the greatest influence, he feared that he might be ostracized, and so at first had naught to do with politics, but devoted himself rather to a military career, where he was brave and enterprising. However, when Aristides was dead, and Themistocles in banishment, and Simon was kept by his campaigns for the most part abroad, then at last Pericles decided to devote himself to the people, espousing the cause of the poor and the many instead of the few and the rich, contrary to his own nature, which was anything but popular but he feared as it would seem to encounter a suspicion of aiming at tyranny and when he saw that simon was very aristocratic in his sympathies and was held in extraordinary affection by the party of the good and true he began to court the favour of the multitude thereby securing safety for himself and power to wield against his rival straightway too he made a different ordering in his way of life on one street only in the city was he seen to be walking the one which took him to the market-place and the council-chamber invitations to dinner and all such friendly and familiar intercourse he declined so that during the long period that elapsed while he was at the head of the state there was not a single friend to whose house he went to dine except that when his kinsman europe gave a wedding feast he attended until the libations were made and then straightway rose up and departed conviviality is prone to break down and overpower the haughtiest reserve and in familiar intercourse the dignity which is assumed for appearances sake is very hard to maintain whereas in the case of true and genuine virtue, fairest appears that which most appears, and nothing in the conduct of good men is so admirable in the eyes of strangers as their daily walk and conversation is in the eyes of those who share it. And so it was that Pericles, seeking to avoid the satiety which springs from continual intercourse, made his approaches to the people by intervals, as it were, not speaking on every question, nor addressing the people on every occasion, but offering himself like the Salaminian trireme, as Critalus says, for great emergencies. The rest of his policy he carried out by commissioning his friends and other public speakers. One of these, as they say, was Ephialtes, who broke down the power of the council of Areopagus, and so poured out for the citizens, to use the words of Plato, too much undiluted freedom, by which the people was rendered unruly, just like a horse, and, as the comic poets say, no longer had the patience to obey the rein. But nabbed Euboea and trampled on the islands moreover, by way of providing himself with a style of discourse which was adapted like a musical instrument to his mode of life and the grandeur of his sentiments, he often made an auxiliary string of anaxagoras subtly mingling, as it were, with his rhetoric the dye of natural science. It was from natural science, as the divine Plato says, that he acquired his loftiness of thought and perfectness of execution in addition to his natural gifts, and by applying what he learned to the art of speaking, he far excelled all other speakers. It was thus, they say, that he got his surname, though some suppose it was from the structures with which he adorned the city, and others from his ability as a statesman and a general, that he was called Olympian. It is not at all unlikely that his reputation was the result of blending in him of many high qualities. But the comic poets of that day, who let fly, both in earnest and in jest, many shafts of speech against him, make it plain that he got this surname chiefly because of his diction. They spoke of him as thundering and lightning when he harangued his audience, and as wielding a dread thunderbolt in his tongue. There is on record also a certain saying of Thucydides, the son of Milesius, touching the clever persuasiveness of Pericles, a saying uttered in jest. Thucydides belonged to the party of the good and true, and was for a very long time a political antagonist of Pericles. When Archidamus, the king of the Lacedaemonians, asked him whether he or Pericles was the better wrestler, he replied, Whenever I throw him in wrestling, he disputes the fall, and carries his point, and persuades the very men who saw him fall. The truth is, however, that even Pericles, with all his gifts, was cautious in his discourse, so that whenever he came forward to speak, he prayed the gods that there might not escape him unawares a single word, which was unsuited to the matter under discussion. In writing he left nothing behind him except the decrees which he proposed, and only a few in all of his memorable sayings are preserved, as, for instance, his urging the removal of Jugina as the eyesore of Piraeus, and his declaring that he already beheld war swooping down upon them from the Peloponnesus. Once also when Sophocles, who was general with him on a certain naval expedition, praised a lovely boy, he said, IT IS NOT HIS HANDS ONLY, SOPHOCLES, THAT A GENERAL MUST KEEP CLEAN, BUT HIS EYES AS WELL. AGAIN, Stesimbrotus SAYS THAT, IN HIS FUNERAL ORATION OVER THOSE WHO HAD FALLEN IN THE SAMIAN WAR, HE DECLARED THAT THEY HAD BECOME IMMORTAL LIKE THE GODS. THE GODS THEMSELVES, HE SAID, WE CANNOT SEE, BUT FROM THE HONORS WHICH THEY RECEIVE, AND THE BLESSINGS WHICH THEY BESTOW, WE CONCLUDE THAT THEY ARE IMMORTAL. SO IT WAS, HE SAID, WITH THOSE WHO HAD GIVEN THEIR LIVES FOR THEIR COUNTRY. Thucydides describes the administration of Pericles as rather aristocratic, in name a democracy, but in fact a government by the greatest citizen. But many others say that the people was first led on by him into allotments of public land, festival grants, and distributions of fees for public services, thereby falling into bad habits, and becoming luxurious and wanton under the influence of his public measures, instead of frugal and self-sufficing. Let us therefore examine in detail the reason for this change in him, In the beginning, as has been said, pitted as he was against the reputation of Simon, he tried to ingratiate himself with the people. And since he was the inferior in wealth and property, by means of which Simon would win over the poor, furnishing a dinner every day to any Athenian who wanted it, bestowing raiment on the elderly men, and removing the fences from his estates that whosoever wished might pluck the fruit, Pericles, outdone in popular arts of this sort, had recourse to the distribution of the people's own wealth. This was on the advice of Demonides, of the Demae Oa, as Aristotle has stated. And soon, what with festival grants and jurors' wages, and other fees and largesses, he bribed the multitude by the wholesale, and used them in opposition to the council of the Areopagus. Of this body he himself was not a member, since the lot had not made him either first Archon, or Archon Thesumatic, or King Archon, or Archon polemarch these offices were in ancient times filled by lot and through them those who properly acquitted themselves were promoted into the areopagus for this reason all the more did pericles strong in the affections of the people lead a successful party against the council of the areopagus not only was the council robbed of most of its jurisdiction by ephialtes but simon also on the charge of being a lover of sparta and a hater of the people was ostracized a man who yielded to none in wealth and lineage who had won most glorious victories over the barbarians, and had filled the city full of money and spoils, as it is written in his life. Such was the power of Pericles among the people. Now ostracism involved legally a period of ten years' banishment. But in the meanwhile the Lacedaemonians invaded the district of Tanagra with a great army, and the Athenians straightway sallied out against them. So Simon came back from his banishment and stationed himself with his tribesmen in line of battle, and determined by his deeds to rid himself of the charge of too great love for Sparta, in that he shared the perils of his fellow-citizens. But the friends of Pericles banded together and drove him from the ranks, on the ground that he was under sentence of banishment. For which reason, it is thought, Pericles fought most sturdily in that battle, and was the most conspicuous of all in exposing himself to danger. And there fell in this battle all the friends of Simon to a man, whom Pericles had accused with him of too great love for Sparta. Wherefore sore repentance fell upon the Athenians, and a longing desire for Simon, defeated as they were on the confines of Attica, and expecting as they did a grievous war with the coming of spring. So then Pericles, perceiving this, hesitated not to gratify the desires of the multitude, but wrote with his own hand the decree which recalled the man. Whereupon Simon came back from banishment, and made peace between the cities for the Lacedaemonians were as kindly disposed towards him as they were full of hatred towards Pericles and the other popular leaders. Some, however, say that the decree for the restoration of Simon was not drafted by Pericles until a secret compact had been made between them, through the agency of Elpinice, Simon's sister, to the effect that Simon should sail out with a fleet of two hundred ships, and have command in foreign parts, attempting to subdue the territory of the king while Pericles should have supreme power in the city. And it was thought that before this, too, Elpinice had rendered Pericles more lenient towards Simon, when he stood his trial on the capital charge of treason. Pericles was at that time one of the committee of prosecution appointed by the people, and on Elpinice's coming to him and supplicating him, said to her with a smile, "Elpenese, thou art an old woman, thou art an old woman, to attempt such tasks.' however he made only one speech by way of formally executing his commission and in the end did the least harm to simon of all his accusers how then can one put trust in idomenius who accused pericles of assassinating the popular leader ephialtes though he was his friend and partner in his political program out of mere jealousy and envy of his reputation these charges he has raked up from one source or other and hurled them as if so much venom against one who was perhaps not in all points irreproachable, but who had a noble disposition and an ambitious spirit, wherein no such savage and bestial feelings can have their abode. As for Ephialtes, who was a terror to the oligarchs and inexorable in exacting accounts from those who wronged the people, and in prosecuting them, his enemies laid plots against him, and had him slain secretly by Aristodicus of Tanagra, as Aristotle says. As for Simon, he died on his campaign in Cyprus. Then the aristocrats, aware even some time before this that Pericles was already become the greatest citizen, but wishing nevertheless to have some one in the city who should stand up against him and blunt the edge of his power, that it might not be an out-and-out monarchy, put forward Thucydides of Alopisi, a discreet man and a relative of Simon, to oppose him. He being less of a warrior than Simon, and more of a forensic speaker and statesman, by keeping watch and ward in the city, and by wrestling bouts with Pericles on the bema, soon bought the administration into even poise. He would not suffer the party of the good and true, as they called themselves, to be scattered up and down and blended with the populace, as heretofore, the weight of their character being thus obscured by numbers, but by culling them out and assembling them into one body, he made their collective influence thus become weighty, as it were a counterpoise in the balance. Now there had been from the beginning a sort of seam hidden beneath the surface of affairs, as in a piece of iron, which faintly indicated a divergence between the popular and the aristocratic program, but the emulous ambition of these two men cut a deep gash in the state, and caused one section of it to be called the demos, or the people, and the other the aliagoi, or the few. At this time, therefore, particularly, Pericles gave the reins to the people, and made his policy one of pleasing them ever devising some sort of pageant in the town for the masses, or a feast, or a procession, amusing them like children with not uncouth delights, and sending out sixty triremes annually, on which large numbers of the citizens sailed for about eight months under pay, practising at the same time and acquiring the art of seamanship. In addition to this, he dispatched a thousand settlers into the Chersonesus and five hundred to Naxos, and to Andros half that number, and a thousand to Thrace to settle with the Bisalte, and others to Italy, when the site of Sibaris was settled, which they named Thurii. All this he did by way of lightening the city of its mob of lazy and idle busybodies, rectifying the embarrassments of the poor people, and giving the alien for neighbors an imposing garrison which should prevent rebellion. End of Pericles Part 1